This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia. Howard. What are we thinking about on today's episode? Well, we're thinking about eponyms. But first, what's the thing we do for no reason? Well, we have a special guest, so I'm going to let our special guest tell us something we do for no reason. So let me introduce my old friend, Stuart Winkler. He's a gynecologic oncologist currently at Brook Army Medical Center. He did his residency at Wake Forest and then a fellowship in oncology at Walter Reed. And Stuart and I, what we have in common is we're both super history of medicine buffs. We both collect Howard Kelly texts and other weird stuff like that. We should have him back on to talk about Howard Kelly someday and radium, which I know he did some extra work on too, but we both love the history of OBGYN and medicine. And of course, that brings us to eponyms. So that's why I thought he'd be a great guest for an episode talking about eponyms. But he does know other stuff. He doesn't, he knows oncology too. So we'll let him tell us something we do for no reason. Thanks. Thanks, Antonia and Howard. It's great to be on the podcast. I've been a fan for a while. So it's nice to, nice to actually be on now. So I know that you guys tend to get in a lot of trouble and I've not seen your email inbox, but I can only imagine it's probably full of all sorts of mess. So before I go too far, I've got to say that what I talk about on this podcast is my own views only. It doesn't reflect the views of the Air Force, which happens to be my employer. So I don't get paid enough to be their spokesperson, and I don't want that job. And what we don't, what we Noted. say doesn't reflect the views of our employers either. We have yeah. the Navy and the Air Force not represented today. So. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> okay. So we'll try to keep all the armed forces from getting in too much trouble. So tell us a thing we do for no reason, Stuart. Yeah. So I think a good one to discuss is the utility of checking a CA-125 for patients with simple cysts that are under 10 centimeters in diameter. All right. I'm very glad for this one. So the scenario for this would be a patient coming in with pain, or maybe she's an ER follow-up and they found an eight centimeter ovarian cyst that's simple, no complex features, no septations, no solid components, but then their provider orders tumor markers or at least just a CA-125 as part of the workup. And I've seen a lot of family med docs do this before they send them to me. And then even when I see them, I at least think about it if there's a mass that's probably benign, but I just wonder, is it benign enough that I can take her to the OR and not have to worry about a surprise cancer? Should I be really sure by getting that one CA-125? So yeah, so this is a good one, I think, a very relevant one. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. And obviously, I get this question all the time. So I'm fortunate enough to work in a pretty big clinic where I have a lot of different specialties and probably about 15 generalists who work around me. And I really enjoy that. And I was, as Howard knows, I was a generalist for four years as well. So I've been in that situation as well from that side of the table. But yeah, so I think when I've been referred these ovarian cancer patients that are these unexpected surprise ovarian cancers, or I've even had one or two myself, when I go back and look at the imaging, it's never a completely simple cyst. I think that's an important thing to take away. So let's talk about the cyst that can be that we can be reassured by. And then we can talk about the question of getting a CA125. You know, from an oncology perspective, if you see a unilocular simple cyst that's less than 10 centimeters, you and your patient can be really reassured that this isn't ovarian cancer. The data for this is old. This is not new at all. In fact, when I was reading the paper, I noted that the, the year of the paper that this was published in was the same year that Where is the Love by the Black Eyed Peas was number one. <laughs> on the billboard charts. It's a good year. I think I think that's when we also got 50 Cent and the 8 Mile soundtrack still on the radio. So that's yeah. 20 years. Yeah. yeah, can't believe that. That was good music, good music. And so, okay, back to the data. So our reassurance comes from our long, a large longitudinal study. And this was done, we refer to the UK studies, and this is the one out of the University of Kentucky. There's another one that's out of the United Kingdom. But the University of Kentucky Ovarian Screening Program. So this was a big study, and this one in particular included over 15,000 women who were 50 years or older and asymptomatic. And over that study period, about 2,700 women were diagnosed with a unilocular cyst less than 10 centimeters. Only 10 of these patients developed ovarian cancer. But even in these where cancer developed, they had a separate cyst that was complex, and that was where the where the cancer likely came from. So the bottom line is, out of almost 
3,000 women, no cancer was diagnosed in a patient with a simple unilocular cyst less than 10 centimeters. And then even in a follow-up study, patients with septated cysts that did not have other complex features had essentially a 0% chance of ovarian cancer. There's a couple of these PubMed IDs that I think we can probably link in the show notes. Yeah, we can definitely do that on the website. But okay, the patient has been doing some research. She's been referred by her family doc about this dangerous cyst that they've discovered on an incidental CT scan. And she's Googled it and read her literature. And she wants to see a 125 just to rest assured that this isn't cancer because that's what the Google told her. So what do you, what do you say to her? Yeah, I've definitely been asked. People have asked me for a CA125 by name. But there's a couple things. First of all, the cost isn't insignificant. And there's the immediate cost of the test, which is it's about $200 for this ELISA-based test, which is a kind of a sandwich test between two antibodies. But then there's this kind of hidden cost. And so the real potential harm is the misuse of CA125 that leads to unnecessary interventions. And these are performed and increased cost and morbidity. And we learned this lesson with the PLCO cancer screening trial. So this was the prostate, lung, colorectal, and ovarian cancer screening trial. This is a huge study. It randomized over 78,000 postmenopausal women to the care, to usual care, or screening with an ultrasound and CA125. And in the screening group, over 3,000 women had a false positive. And of these, a thousand underwent unnecessary surgery. In this group that underwent this unnecessary surgery, 15% had a major complication. Most commonly was an infection or damage to surrounding structures. 15% seems a little high to me, but that was what it was in this study. And this would all be worth it if it increased the detection of ovarian cancer and allowed for the treatment at an earlier stage. But screening and intervention actually did none of these things. So the decision to check a CA-125 really is not without consequence. It's not just throwing a lab in there. And for our patient in the ED, she has a cyst and symptoms. So a CA-125 isn't really a screening test in that situation, but I think you can extrapolate and, and think about CA-125 more from a pretest probability standpoint. So in this patient with this simple cyst less than 10, centime- 10 centimeters, the pretest probability of having cancer is almost zero or zero. So a CA-125 may not be helpful. So I know pretest probability is one of Howard's favorite things to talk about, and he has a lot in there, but in his clinical reasoning book about it. But I have the shirt. I did the trip. So <laughs> sure. I, yeah, there's a lot of things like this. Of course, we talk about on the podcast about a lot of things like self-breast exam or yearly pap smears or other things like that that seem innocuous. Like it doesn't seem like there would be much risk in examining your own breast for cancer or doing an extra pap smear or two until it's really pointed out to you that there are risks like unnecessary surgeries and complications from surgeries all for naught, all because you ordered this test. And you can order this, by the way, online on yourself now. So there are a lot of companies that are selling self-screening for ovarian cancer tests, and they're essentially a CA-125. Some of them have a couple of other things in there, but none of them work much better. But the pretest probability, you threw that in there just for me, so I'll bite. You're welcome. The CA-125 has what you what we know about it is it has a very low sensitivity for ovarian cancer, particularly in early stage cancers. This is important because what we're hoping to do here is detect an ovarian cancer that is earlier stage, a stage one or stage two, when you're talking about some simple cyst or something. We're not talking about stage three or four cancer. So we need to know the sensitivity in these earlier stage cancers and the specificity for CA125 to detect that. Now, I'll put a link to a study that used to cut off, and there's different studies with different cutoffs. I'm not suggesting this is a cutoff necessarily, but in this study, they used a cutoff of 37. And in that, they found a 69% sensitivity and an 88% specificity for ovarian cancer. So I'm just going to use those numbers. We can debate what the right cutoff should be in premenopausal, postmenopausal. That's a different subject, but those are the numbers. So one way of thinking about this, if you think about a traditional way of having a two by two square and what this would mean, if we had a hundred patients who presented with the exact same pelvic mass and baseline risk for cancer. And let's say we assume that 5% of those women had ovarian cancer, which is much more likely than the scenario you're presenting with this cyst, where basically we haven't found one in the literature, right? But let's say that 5% of them had cancer. And then we were going to use a CA-125 as a way of trying to understand who the folks with cancer really are. Then that test would, if you do the little two by two box, would discover three true positives. So three of the five would be identified. Two false negatives then. Two people get missed. 11 false positives. These are the people we're operating 
operating on, maybe for no reason, and then 84 true negatives. So two of the women with ovarian cancer wouldn't even be detected by this test in a world where 5% of them actually had cancer. And we do know that 40% of women with stage 1 ovarian cancers have a normal CA125. That's essentially where that number comes from. And of course, then there's these 11 women who are falsely identified as having cancer who don't have it, and then they undergo the surgeries and potential treatments when they didn't even have a malignancy. So the practical question here, though, is what's the pretest probability that the patient you all have been describing, this sub-10 centimeter unilocular cyst, has ovarian cancer? And the risk we see quoted sometimes is like 1 in 80 of getting cancer in their lifetime. So you could start with that risk. But most of those, of course, of course occur in women's older age, in their 60s or 70s or beyond. So we're talking about a healthy 30-year-old with maybe no BRCA status risk factors like a history of breast or ovarian cancer and a simple unilocular cyst. Wow, the pretest probability, you've called it zero, Stuart, just from a probability perspective, let's never say never. But one in a thousand is not crazy, right? One in a thousand. So if we apply this test, the CA125, to that particular patient with that pretest probability, and again, we already know it's not the best test in the world, how would we interpret a result? Well, in this case, the positive predictive value of an elevated CA125, you find an elevated one above 37, the positive predictive value that patient has ovarian cancer is about a half a percent. In other words, the woman would have a 99.5% chance of not having ovarian cancer, even if she had an elevated CO25. So tests like these are just not useful. And we end up with a ton of false positives and people didn't get unnecessary surgeries. And we also get false negatives that hurt people as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a great explanation of how that applies to this patient. So the bottom line, as far as a thing we do for no reason, in a patient with a unilocular cyst less than 10 centimeters, given this argument that the chance of cancer is approaching zero, any CA125 is going to be a false positive that's elevated. So I, it, like like I said, and like we've foot stomped, I think it's just unhelpful and even potentially harmful. We definitely should have you back on sometime and just talk about the workup from the generalist perspective vis-a-vis the oncologist, what we do with adnexal masses. It's something that Antonio and I have put off for a while. And when should we refer? When should we operate ourselves? Things like that. So I think that there's a, probably a wide variety of practice patterns out there in the world among generalists when it comes to these decisions. And not just for things like that, but also cervical dysplasias and EIN and VIN and things like that would be a great show. Yeah, I'd love to talk about when to refer. COG and SGO recently changed their recommendations to be a little bit less specific. And I think that's opened up a lot of questions, but I think it maybe gives the generalist a little more ability to think through things and finesse it a little bit more. But yeah, glad to talk about that anytime. Yeah, that would be awesome. I think also I counted, I think I've probably worked with 10 different gynocs just from the start of my training. And they also have a range of opinions too. And it's not as bad as MFM where... Well, that's the real notorious (laughs) If you have 10 MFMs in a room, you have 11 opinions. Exactly. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Most of their opinions are backed up by GOG this or that. And, but still, yeah, sometimes it's just hard to know what does this guy not want me to do? But yeah. yeah and the, ge- so, the generalists that work with me are pretty spoiled too, because we we're down the hall and yeah. uh, it's nice though, because as you probably know, the military has a lot of younger docs and it's, it's a little bit of a mentorship opportunity. So I don't mind that at all. It's good. Yeah. A lot of education, but I guess we should talk about our real topic today, which is eponyms. So we know there's just a ton of these. And I know, Howard, you and Stuart have a list of like 300 just related to OBGYN. And of course, there's thousands more in other disciplines of medicine. And it seems like at least I'm getting the impression that some medical societies have been pushing away from using eponyms. I'm not sure how many new eponyms we'll even come up with in the future, especially if people are consciously trying to move away from using them. But maybe we can talk about whether in some cases they're actually useful and we should keep them definitely and useful, not just interesting because they they definitely are interesting too. Well, Stuart and I both, as I said, have a big interest in the history of medicine, history of OBGYN in particular. And of course, eponyms, I, I think, definitely serve a special place in in our profession, but also particularly if you're interested in the history of things. But I do think they serve a practical application in our work. If nothing else, it's easier to say, I'm going to do a Zavanelli maneuver than it is to say, I'm 
going to reverse the cardinal movements of labor and recapitulate the fetal head and then perform a cesarean delivery. And we could riff off 50 different examples of complex surgical procedures and things like that, that we know what they mean when we say the one word and not the other. Say just saves time and is efficient. Yeah. So, Like a whipple or with, something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The same with surgical instruments. You don't want to have to ask for the pickup with the two-in-one claws on the end and the, like have to describe in some level of detail what pickup I'm talking about. I just want to say I want a Babcock or whatever the case may be. So now the problem, of course, is some of these eponyms might be associated with people who we don't want to shed a positive light on due to what we today at least judge as problematic or complicated beliefs or lives or things that they were involved in. So this is something that we've talked a lot about in the recent few episodes, but I think Stuart can kick us off. Yeah, sure. So one of the most famous OBGYN eponymists, if that's a word, but eponym lovers like us, was a doctor named Harold Spirit. He's written some really great books and articles that I've certainly enjoyed reading throughout my throughout my study of this. And he's organized a lot of the stories behind dozens of these medical eponyms related to OBGYN. So he wrote this book called Obstetric and Gynecologic Milestones. And in his preface, and this was back in the 50s, but in his preface, he acknowledged that some claim that the eponym can distort history. So quote, distort history by magnifying persons above the threshold and diminishing those below. But ultimately, as a historian, he said that eponyms can, quote, help to tell a story of discovery or invention and can add a thread to the fabric of the history of medicine. And I really like that image, that thread in the fabric of the history of medicine. So almost 40 years ago, another doctor, Howard Birchall, wrote an essay called Thoughts on Eponyms, which I think is a great little essay. He set out advantages and disadvantages of medical eponyms. So I think these would be a good jumping off point for our discussion. He identified four pros and four cons, and then I would add one additional con that is pretty relevant to a lot of the discussion about eponyms today. So on the pro-eponym point, these include serving as medical shorthand for efficient communication, kind of like Howard mentioned with the Zavanelli maneuver, creating interest in the history of medicine, adding fun to the medical lingo, and then finally honoring the greats of the profession. And then on the anti-eponym side, there's a few issues. Sometimes there's a lack of a clear definition attached to an eponym. There's also the problem related to that of misappropriated eponyms. Some are concerned that the use of eponyms contributes to medical argo or jargon that limits the communication outside of a small group of specialists. And then finally, Emma Louise Call and Sister Mary Joseph notwithstanding, eponyms are overwhelmingly attributed to white men. And I would add this fifth point that some of these namesakes, like Howard said, believed and did things that we just find troubling today and even reprehensible in some cases. I told you, Antonia, he would come through with another female eponym, Sister Mary <laughs> Joseph, yeah. in the house, represented. So that gets us up to five now, I think. That's right. That's right. There's a few. <laughs> There you go. Okay, well, with respect to the first point, the shorthand, eponyms definitely do allow for some of that. But I think they can also sometimes do the opposite. So I'm thinking of the Meyer-Rakotansky-Kuster-Hauser syndrome. I remember when we were studying for our shelves in med school, Howard was teaching us, he flipped in, it's the Meyer-Rakotansky-Kuster-Harrell-Hauser syndrome. But it's probably a lot easier and more descriptive to say malaria and agenesis. But you don't sound as cool when you say that. And I still to this day call it the Meyer-Rokitowski-Kuster-Harrell-Hauser syndrome. And most people don't notice. Yeah, it just slips right in there. Yeah. And not to jump to a later point, but even I, the proud owner of Save the Eponyms Twitter handle, <laughs> I could only tell you about one of these namesakes off the top of my head. You're not including the Harrell part then. Not the Harrell part. It's yeah, two. I guess that would be two. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I did. I have wanted to name the spoon on DNC trays the Herald. So the I, Herald. I get the scrub text to call that the Herald because I just really <laughs> feel like I need an instrument. <laughs> That's fine. Rokotansky, I think, spread his name around so much that he he wanted to make sure everybody knew who he was. So. Yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. hear it for Austrian pathologists. So. <laughs> And then there's the Morisot Smelly Vite maneuver for breach presentation. And so, maybe some people might shorten that to just more so, but there's no brief way to physically describe it like there is for malaria and agenesis in that other example. But I think more so smelly vite, that's a lot of syllables. It's just a mouthful, especially like when you're in a delivery. So at least those two eponyms, and there's probably some other ones that don't make things shorter while many certainly do. 
then there's the fallopian tube. It's short enough, but you could just as easily say uterine tube. And just it just takes the same amount of time. Yeah. It's just as clear. <laughs> so that, yeah, the shorthand wins in some cases, but it might not be overall the strongest argument for us keeping all eponyms, especially not the long eponyms. But then the next point you you brought up from that essay was the historical value. I will say before we talk about the historical sort of value of them, that again, like surgical instruments, I think a lot of the push for criticism comes from non-surgeons, but it is just so much easier to ask for surgical instruments by a name than by some sort of description. So how do I quickly mm-hmm. distinguish between a DeBakey and a Bonnie and an Adson and a Russian and a half dozen other pickups in the OR? So Eponyms for me will survive just for that reason, if no other merit. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. That's a great point. I think a lot of the anti-eponym literature comes from the internal medicine world, where they don't have these sort of instruments to worry about. But as far as the historical perspective is concerned, I get a little philosophical here. Some people just don't like history. I don't know if they had a bad high school history teacher or something. I don't know. They maybe find it boring or irrelevant, or some people legitimately find it misleading. But I have a different view on this for sure, and I know the two of you do as well. Yeah, for sure. I think that for me, understanding the history of how we got here is immensely important in medical education. Just from a practical perspective, it's helpful to know how techniques and procedures and treatments and things, how we discovered them and how they developed and improved them and changed over time. There are things that we did historically, like bladder flaps, for example, at the time of a cesarean that were immensely important before the age of antibiotics, but they're not that important now. And it's not that we don't have an eponym for this, so if you got... Guys, think of one. Tell me. But if you understand the history of why we used to do bladder flaps and why they're no longer necessary after the world of antibiotics, then you won't have a hard time in your practice stopping doing them at the time of C-section when we tell you the evidence says not to do it. But if you don't understand the history, well, you might make up a reason why it's important. Like a lot of people believe that bladder flaps protect the bladder, which it doesn't. It actually increases risk of harm. But in that belief, you might not be as willing to stop the technique. So I think there's a pragmatic reason and a value in understanding how we got here and what things we tried and what worked and what didn't and why we changed something. There's also just something about knowing the history of medicine that grounds us, I think, in knowing how wrong our predecessors were about so many things, but how sure they were of their beliefs about them. And this is a lesson for us today. Now, Stuart and I both, as I said, are collectors of Howard Kelly. And one of my favorite things is the introduction to his 1934 gynecology text, which he wrote at the end of his career. And the introduction is just amazing. He essentially believes at that point in 1934, that up in the last 40 years of his career, all of medical science came to a complete and full understanding and everything needed to be known and everything related to gynecology was now known. While he easily discounts all of the foolishness of the beliefs of gynecologists from the 1880s and 90s whom he replaced and improved upon. Now, we write that way sometimes today as if we figured everything out and we're quick to make fun of our predecessors who did lobotomies or something that we know is wrong today. There's really no good reason, if you understand and appreciate history, to believe that we're not equally wrong about equally as many things as people like Howard Kelly, who was way smarter than probably any of us are. And he looks foolish in that book in 19. 1934. So I actually read that to students as a reminder of our own hubris. We're not smarter than these folks. We just live in different times and maybe we're wrong about different things. So I think history grounds us. It protects us against the optimism bias, which is our tendency to believe that we and our generation know everything and no one else ever did know anything. And eponyms are a great part of that history and they help us appreciate key turning points in time or when an advancement was made or an invention that's helpful or something like that when our specialty changed and helps us teach that to other folks too. Yeah, I think another good example of all of this is obstetric forceps. They're instruments, but they have a really rich history. And then the eponyms kind of follow the evolution of the tool. So we don't use the same Chamberlain forceps that the Chamberlains used in the 17th century anymore. But starting from them and their initial design, we can trace how forceps were continuously modified and improved from the original version. And those originals were found buried in their floorboards in their home in Essex because it was this big family trademark secret. In Great Britain, the Scottish physician James Young Simpson developed his forceps and I think a lot of us know that name pretty well. We see a lot of derivatives of that today, but we still pretty commonly ask for Simpson forceps. 
in operative vaginal deliveries now. And then on this, on our side of the Atlantic, we have George Elliott from New York who developed a different type of forceps that have the overlapping shanks. And then from this model, two other New York physicians, James Woods McLean and Irvin Tucker, developed their popular model of the forceps. So both Elliott's and Tucker McLean's are all still commonly used today. So I think a study and understanding of eponyms helps trace the development of the practice and of course of the instruments themselves. Yeah. And understanding the history of why each new modification for forcep was developed and why it was helpful. Understanding all that today and understanding how to properly use these forceps and what types of forceps might be best indicated for different applications, knowing that history, I think is incredibly useful and helpful. There's a lot of knowledge tucked away just in that story you just told. Like that's a whole episode of a podcast understanding and it'll make you a better operator of forceps. And I also feel like we need like a family tree now, an infographic of the genealogy of forceps after you you say that. So it gets me interested in things. Yeah. And brings us to that, to the next point about eponyms is that they're just, they're interesting. They're fun. Yeah, I agree. Maybe not everybody does, but I (laughs) think we can all, at least in this group of the three of us, agree that they're interesting and fun. And they're really a great teaching tool too. I love being in the OR and one of my favorite things is for an intern to ask for a Kelly clamp. And I'll ask, hey, who Hmm. is that named after? And actually you'll be surprised how many OBGYN chiefs have no idea who Kelly Mm -hmm. was. But yeah, I think they're a great teaching tool. And so when I'm teaching and I use an eponym, I feel like it's an opportunity to tell an interesting and maybe a memorable story. But really, I think it helps things stick. And so I don't know. I don't know. If people don't agree that they're interesting and fun, I don't think this podcast is going <laughs> to convince them. So we can probably move on. <laughs> yeah, let's just take it as a given that the eponyms are interesting universally. And finally, they can also be like in a positive way, they can honor the person that they're naming the whatever the thing or the procedure for. They definitely can be. And that's where we maybe have a greater responsibility here. I think ironically, that's where most of the counter arguments about eponyms come into play. Do we want to honor some of these people? Do they deserve honor? Every profession normally has some mechanism of keeping track of important innovators and champions, if you will. The sports world has its Babe Ruths and Jackie Robinsons and Heisman trophies and Walter Camp awards and things like that. Fans and players know the history and the importance of these people. And those monikers and the things we name after them serve as inspiration and something to aspire to for the rest of us or for future players. So I think eponyms definitely have an honorific role to play for physicians. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I actually, I think too, that it's okay that the instrument or the operation or whatever the eponym is may not be the physician's greatest achievement. So sorry to keep bringing up the Kelly clamp, but I, as Howard mentioned, I'm pretty obsessed with Kelly. But mm-hmm. for instance, that's really not his greatest achievement, being the person who set American gynecology in the modern era on its course was probably his greatest achievement. But and you know, urology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But this eponym honors a man who was really important and had a lot of great accomplishments. So I am all about having the Kelly clamp be named after him, even though he has other probably more important accomplishments. Well, it's like a tangible day, almost like a daily thing. So it keeps him at the forefront. Let's go to the cons about eponyms. The first two are somewhat related, and those are the ambiguity and the misappropriation of eponyms. Yeah, so maybe the case that an eponym that we commonly refer to today is not the same thing that the eponym once referred to. So we frequently throw the word modified in front of an eponym to clarify that we're not doing the exact same thing that the originator did. And then it's unclear what we're doing because when you modify it, it could be modifying it in any way. You don't really clarify how you're modifying. Right. So yeah, for example, the modified Woods maneuver for shoulder dystocia, a lot of us, if a lot of us are careful to say modified, or at least we should be because the original Woods maneuver included fundal pressure, pushing that baby's shoulder further down into the mother's pelvis, which we do not want to imply by any means. That sounds bad. Yeah, yeah. But then if we say modified, it doesn't exactly promise that we left off the fundal pressure So we then still have to describe what we did and make sure that we did not apply fundal pressure. And then at that point, there's almost no reason to even have a shorthand 
just describe the whole thing anyway. And then the modified Ritgen, which one does that mean you used digital pressure inside the rectum to get the baby's head out or that you specifically didn't? I think you still have to describe that one as well. Yeah, it's and for a lot of these, it's probably rarely the case that we do them exactly as they intended in the vaginal hysterectomy world, the modified McCall coldoplasty. My guess is a lot of folks do not know what what a modified McCall coldoplasty is in any standard way and probably have no idea how McCall himself did his coldoplasty. I've read the original paper and I promise you no one is doing a McCall coldoplasty today. So the procedures moved quite a bit away from what he did, as is the case with most of these things. So what's the point in calling it a McCall coldoplasty? It's perhaps just an honorific. Yeah. Yeah. So all this we've talked about really gets to the next point about creating jargon that no one understands. So if you use some archaic term that's either ambiguous or it may not be ambiguous, but the average reader of your op note doesn't understand it, then you're really not really serving a good purpose and you're really inhibiting clear communication. Yeah. An example of that for me might be the Hallban procedure. So I do these occasionally in my pelvic floor surgeries and I'll call it that in my operative note, but someone would probably have to go look it up, probably to find out what I mean by a Hallban procedure. Even someone in our profession, let alone a lay reader, would not understand or a general surgeon or somebody else reading my note would not know what a Hallban procedure is. Now, I did just Google Hallban to see. <laughs> and fortunately, a very accurate description comes up as the first couple of results. So I'm happy with that. If you went and Googled it, you'd find out what I'm talking about. But again, it limits you. You have to go do that work. It's not immediately clear what I did. So I could, maybe it's better if I just were to say I placated the posterior cul-de-sac with a series of sagittal sutures positioned along the pouch of Douglas in a vertical direction. But it just takes so much longer to say that. So I'll probably say hall band procedure in my op note. You can have paste dictations, but yeah, if you're actually saying that into a voice recorder, yeah, it takes longer. But yeah, we have to be thoughtful about who is our audience and make sure we're not excluding people from understanding what we're trying to communicate to them. And we need to be careful that we're communicating something in a precise and unambiguous way. So when we use eponyms, we need to take those things into account. And we could say the same thing probably for abbreviations as well. Like if I say PPROM in the wrong audience, maybe to the even the average patient, they might have no idea what I'm talking about, but then my colleagues would. And abbreviations like that essentially exclude a lot of folks from our conversations, but at the same time, they save time when they're used appropriately and in the right context. Yeah, we're our specialty is just absolutely has a epidemic of abbreviations that we have to be careful about. But there's also the issue of misappropriation of these eponyms. And I think it's the case that a lot of things are named after people who are not the original or maybe not the sole inventors or discoverers of the thing that they're named after. So we may be giving credit to the wrong person or giving incomplete credit. But at this point, if you guys are okay with it, I just have to I have to air a pet peeve. Is this a good place to do this? It's a perfect place to do this. <laughs> okay. This is our therapy. This okay, is great. Therapy. Great, great. All right, thanks. I'll sit down on the couch here. So I don't know who Thompson is, but that person has nothing to do with the needlepoint suture passer device that we commonly use to close fascia in laparoscopy. So it's called a Carter Thomason. So I correct people all the time on this and it's obnoxious, so I should probably stop. I just do believe that we should give credit where credit's due. And I know it's maybe a verbal mistake or whatnot, but there there are also some legitimate misappropriations as well. Note to Dr. Winkler's residents and students. <laughs> That's right. It is a Carter Thomason <laughs> needle or <laughs> closure device. Yeah. Yeah. I found an article actually about this area, just an anti-eponym article talking about this idea of misappropriation. It was about Bichette's disease, which is something we deal with in gynecology. So Holushi Bichette recognized this disease disease himself in 1937. But if you do a little bit of work and look at how other folks have recognized the disease, made contributions that are meaningful to understanding the disease and categorizing it in some significant way over time and publish literature about it, then fairly, you might have to call it, get ready, the Hippocrates, Janin, Newman, Rice, Bluth, Gilbert, Planner, Rimanowski, Weave, Shegeta, Pills, Grutz, Carol, Reese, Samick, Fisher, Walter, Roman, Coomer, Adamantiadis, Descapolos, Matras, Whitwell, Nishimura, Blobner, Weakers, Register, Knapp, Bachette disease. To be completely fair to everyone. <laughs> so that's a little much. And so we do get into these battles about giving people the wrong credit or not crediting everybody. And that's just, that's because we'd end up with that if we really did the work, I think. 
Let's please not do that, please. <laughs> okay, well, another negative about eponyms been alluding to is the racism and the sexism because they mostly refer to white men. And yeah, Howard and I did joke previously about how few female eponyms there are. And you brought one more, but it's still in the single digits, at least in our specialty. And I think ironically, if we were to follow the trend of moving away from eponyms, now that our our profession, OBGYN, is more female dominated, we might actually prevent new eponyms from becoming popular. That might be more representative of females or non-white physicians than they were in the past. Yeah, we should look for those opportunities. Honestly, I, I was trying to think of like, can we create a new eponym today? And one of the people I really respect in our field is Barbara Levy, who's just a fantastic vaginal hysterectomist and has contributed largely to how I do and my knowledge of vaginal hysterectomy. I'd love for something to be named after her. I'm not sure what, but I'll work on it. But yeah, the one thing after women- The spoon, the spoon. The spoon. No, that's the hair all. Sorry, Barbara. But yeah, the ones named after women are few and far in between, as we've discussed. And we don't always point out the ones that are named after non-whites because a lot on that list are not white males. So I know in the last episode, we discussed the B. Lynch suture, which is named after a man of African extraction from England, and the Oseo incision, whose inspiration was a brilliant Mexican vaginal surgeon. So there's actually quite a few of these that are not white males per se. I do think it's a good point, though, that if you look for important physicians today in, to honor in the future who've made innovations, then we'll see that number start to change. So that sort of canceling eponyms just because of that point alone, because of kind of the ratio of white men to minorities and women. I don't know that that would make sense necessarily. I think there are actually other approaches too. And I think this is where history comes in and helps us inform how we think about eponyms. So at my last hospital, we actually started calling the Sims speculum the Lucy speculum. So there's been a national conversation about this more recently as J. Marion Sims has been viewed more critically. We know that he developed his technique for the repair of vesicovaginal fistula on enslaved African-American women in Alabama from around 1845 to 1849. So vesicovaginal fistula was a devastating, isolating disease, and it had no treatment at that time. It was really horrible for the women who were afflicted by it. And more cynically, it was a loss in productivity from the perspective of the plantation owners. Medical consent really wasn't anything that resembles what we think of as consent today, particularly for enslaved women. And while Sims wrote that the women he first operated on were, quote, clamoring for the operation, they certainly didn't have the freedom to say no that we would expect in any sort of a patient undergoing a operation today, especially an experimental operation. These were really tedious. To visualize these fistulas, he'd have to use a bent spoon, and this was really the precursor of the speculum that bears his name. The anesthetics, ether, and chloroform were discovered around that time in 1846 and 47, but they really weren't in wide use when Sims was developing his techniques in Alabama. He did actually use anesthesia later in his career, and these were on his predominantly white patients at the Women's Hospital in New York. Still from his writings, Sims seems to think that black women did not feel as much pain as white women. This is absolutely non-factual, but believe it or not, there's a good amount of evidence that doctors still believe this to some extent, and they undertreat pain in black women as compared to white women, even today. And there's an article for that we can also put in the show notes. So his patients, including three whose names we know, so this is Lucy, Anarka, and Betsy, they certainly experienced a lot of pain with these procedures. I remember being at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia about three years ago, and I saw a display with the Lucy Speculum. And I was actually really glad to see that the name of the Sim Speculum had been named there as the Lucy Speculum. Lucy was 18 years old when Sims operated on her. He operated on her numerous times to repair her vesicovaginal fistula. And I do like the idea of the speculum being named in her honor and to commemorate what she went through and really to commemorate the part that she played in developing a repair of this devastating defect. So there, there's really no getting around it. This was a dark time in our history, a lot of injustice. And if replacing the Sims eponym with the Lucy eponym draws more attention to this, then I'm all for that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that story is pretty widely known, maybe not the full details, but I think most people in OBGYN know that he operated on slaves. And there's probably a lot of other examples that, that we don't really think about 
that exists there in history, and we just don't really read into it that much, but that there are people with potentially problematic views or actions by our standards today, at least. I do think from a historical perspective, you have to be careful when you tread here, because a lot of the views that we find objectionable today were commonplace, normal for the times in which people from historical times might have lived. And I think this is a problem with our quickness sometimes to cancel historical figures who might not have been quite as progressive for their time as we are, but they still seemingly were progressive compared to others in their time. They might still, though, be viewed objectionably. So this is where we really do have have to use, I think, the history to judge people in their context of the time they lived. Otherwise, you could cancel basically any historical figure for an objectionable view. Yeah, not to stand Howard Kelly again. Sorry, I've mentioned him all the time. But he was an example of people had pointed to the fact that he treated black women and white women in segregated wards. But actually, he was one of the very few white doctors to treat black women. So is that right? Is that wrong? Is that complicated? I think it's probably complicated. But there has to be a line somewhere. And obviously, that's where we can have healthy debate about where this line actually is. Yeah, and I could make a bold defense about James Marion Sims. But I also don't mind calling the speculum the Lucy either and recognizing, as you said, her contributions to the development of it, which were very material and very painful. So I think Sims is right there where that line must be in terms of historical figures who were important to our profession, made great contributions. How normal were his actions for the time and how much did they comport with the era in which he lived? And how does it make people feel today? And we have to take all those things in and figure out where we use the name and where we don't. I I do get frustrated when people point out that these surgeries happened in the era of anesthesia when basically no one was using anesthesia and Sims probably wasn't even really aware of it at the time. So there are some unfair criticisms, but there's also some fair ones that I think you've pointed out. Well, if we're going to say that Sims is a gray area, then do you want to give us some examples of what's clearly beyond the Sims line? The Sims line? Yeah, it's. I think it, it should be a new eponym for the boundary of where we should rename or stop using someone's eponym due to their problematic lives or beliefs. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. So I guess like Nazi medical experimentation kind of stuff probably would fall beyond the Sims line. Yeah, we've replaced the Sims speculum with the Sims line and we'll call the Sims speculum the Lucy. So we've got, we're up to six things now because Lucy was a woman. All right. Well, how about Reader's syndrome or Wegener's granulomatosis? Both of these were named after Nazi physicians who took part in human experiments that we would consider unethical today and that we would have considered unethical in the 1940s, at least in the United States. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure those are still commonly used in internal medicine, or at least when I was a med student, they were. Yeah, I learned them when I was on my rotation as well. Well, we don't use terms like the Henselman Coposcope due to his participation in the Nazi party, and he did lots of experimentation on patients in concentration camps. And in fact, much of what we know about colposcopy today came from these experiments at Auschwitz and other concentration camps. The ones at Auschwitz in particular were conducted by the Wurst brothers, and they cooperated with Hans Hinzelmann. Okay, so a couple Nazi physicians are clearly beyond the Sims line. Even with examples like that, we still need to be nuanced. We still refer to the Schiller's test, which is where we place iodine on the cervix to help detect malignant cells under direct visualization, named after Walter Schiller, and his work certainly overlapped for decades with Henselmann, but he left Germany in 1937 for a pretty good reason, because he was Jewish, came to America where he practiced the rest of his life. And that difference seems obvious when I say it, but if you looked at how much their work overlapped while he was still in Germany and you just lumped everybody up with a big lasso, you might cancel Schiller by accident. So we still need to be appropriate and nuanced in our discussion. Yeah, definitely. I agree, because Schiller was was not about genocide, whereas Hanselman and those folks were. We're judging from 2023, and it's obviously 100% wrong to do experimental surgery without consent. It's wrong to have slaves, period, let alone do that stuff to slaves. But you have to wonder, the people back then... Did they share any kind of mental ideas that this was wrong at the time? And then even if they didn't, is that still enough to absolve them at least a little bit? I don't know, because it's hard right now. There might be things we're doing now that we think are right, but that someone in the future will think is just totally barbaric and 
sadistic and we're just totally blind to it. So anyway, yeah, I think Sims is right where I think we can, where I draw the line at least. I think he's a little on the wrong side of that line. Still, that's just my opinion. Well, that's why we call it the Lucy. Yeah, exactly. But I do recognize that it's probably easier for me to judge it from now in the future in 2023 than from back in his time. Yeah, this is, I think that's part of the importance of reading history. There's a great C.S. Lewis quote that I'm going to completely botch where he talks about the importance of reading old books. And essentially the point is that in your modern time, there are things that you're blinded to. There's There are things that are wrong, but we don't see them as wrong. And we look in the past and we see things that are obvious wrong, but those people were blinded to them. But the more you read and mm-hmm. you know, through different eras, it's like the opposite of the Swiss cheese effect where things start lining up and you, mm-hmm. you, you can at least see those holes a little bit better. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. I think there's a there's also the discussion and with the whole eponym thing about awards. And I think this is interesting. A lot of these awards that we give were based on older physicians who may or may not have had some of these blind spots that we've talked about. So one is a guy named Abraham Flexner. So there's an award given out by the American Medical Association that's being renamed now because people are uncomfortable with Flexner. His report was a landmark report on the state of the American medical schools, and it led to higher standards in my medical education and yours. And it really led to the closure of many substandard medical schools. And unfortunately, this led to a disproportionate closure of traditionally black schools. Specifically, he looked at seven historically black medical schools and recommended the closure of five of them, which actually ended up happening. The report itself has been criticized for encouraging systemic racism, and Flexner himself has been at times even called a racist. Now, this is complicated. Race Flexner was of Jewish descent, and there's a lot of kind of countervailing motives there that could be a little more complicated. And we could definitely do a whole episode of, on Abraham Flexner, but I would encourage you to read both sides of the issue. It's actually sometimes overlooked that he gave glowing reviews of Meharry and Howard, and these are two historically black medical schools that are in operation today. The truth is, whether or not you're comfortable with it, the Flexner report led to an incredible overhaul and increase in standards for medical education in the United States. And while it's true that traditionally black schools were adversely affected, it's also true that they had lower standards at the time that the report was issued. So you just can't unmarry these two issues. So it's complex and it would be wrong, I think, to rush to remove Flexer's name from an award when he really did contribute so much to the quality of medical medical education that we see here in the U.S. And like Howard had said, if you're if you start canceling people for these sort of things, you you may end up canceling somebody like Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the whole beauty of studying history is, as you've pointed out, to put all these things into context. If you look deep enough to anyone who lived in a prior generation, you'll find something, I'm certain, that will make you uncomfortable. Abraham Lincoln, for example, was a slave owner. And he has some pretty repugnant quotes about racial affairs, even in the late late latter parts of the Civil War. So it's easier, I think, for us to focus on actions. Like, did you do medical experiments on people in concentration camps, contrary to the principles of medical ethics that existed at the time? That's, I can say, you shouldn't have done that. This was against universal wisdom, even at the time you did it. Yeah, as compared to, you shouldn't have thought that way. That's harder to pin down. So the Tuskegee syphilis study, that's a good example, way past the Sims line there. And we won't have any eponyms named after those people, Talaferro Clark or Thomas Peran or Raymond Vonderleer. You've probably never heard of them before because we've intentionally, I think, not honored them in any way due to their involvement in that study. Even though someone might argue that they did learn something valuable about syphilis that wasn't previously known. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that overall eponyms are more good than bad. We can be thoughtful about which ones we use and which ones we don't use. And we can look for new eponyms in the future, especially when we highlight these positives that we've discussed and avoid those negatives. They can be useful. They can be efficient and fun. And I I really like to highlight it. 
as I know you guys do as well. It helps us appreciate the history of what we do, and it helps us honor those that innovated and really helped to grow our field. So there are definitely still new eponyms coming out. You mentioned the B. Lynch suture, for example, or maybe the co-copotomizer, neither of which were named after white males, and both of which served to quickly and to clearly communicate which instruments that we want in surgery in an ambiguous way. Yeah, and I do think that is the best argument for continuing to use eponyms, this case of surgical procedures and instruments, which are complex. When I do a vaginal hysterectomy, I may use a Haney needle driver, Allison Babcock clamps, Adson pickups, Allison Dare clamps, Bonnie and DeBakey pickups, Leahy clamps, and just a ton of other instruments that all three of us instantly know what I'm talking about, and so does my scrub tech. But if I didn't have those names, wow, I would hate to think how long it would take for me to describe them and how I would even do that. Yeah, I agree. It was frustrating as a med student to have to learn this whole tray of, it seemed like, endless number of different instruments that all look the same. But once you actually use them enough, get to know them well and what they can do, it's like their names. They're like friends. And then you start to give them nicknames and then then it's just fun. Do you remember at Quillen, they wouldn't call it the Vanderbilt. They made us call it the Quillen because in Tennessee, <laughs> we were so anti-Vanderbilt. I love that. I know there's been some like Army-Navy retractors. Yeah. Yeah. Which just... side's the long side? Yeah, the yeah. Army or the Navy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> See, eponyms can be fun. Yeah. (laughs) Well, is there anything else we want to touch on today besides eponyms? Yeah, I can briefly talk about some recent disappointments in gynecologic oncology, which I think can maybe serve to be instructive. (laughs) Okay, let's hear about it. So we can learn a lot from discussing some of these issues, I think. So on oncology, we're really always looking for the next breakthrough. We're always trying to help our patients live longer and better. And the technique or approach or drug or device or whatever that will help improve the patient's quality of life or ultimately the length of their life really is something we're always hunting for. In our enthusiasm, sometimes we get too excited and sometimes we overstep. I know you guys have talked before about the LAC trial here on this podcast. Yes. Yeah, that was the randomized controlled trial that demonstrated an increased odds of death in patients who had cervical cancer that had a minimally invasive radical surgery as opposed to having an an open traditional surgery. Yeah, that's right. So at the time of this trial, the minimally invasive approach really was being done by almost everybody without any evidence. There was a lot of thought of why it would be good with faster recovery and all of that. And everybody had sort of their way of justifying why they did their surgery the way they did. Master surgeons used to share their videos and they would talk about the precision and the visualization, all the things that robotic surgeons like to talk about at their conferences. And I've done these cases robotically and they really are beautiful and you can see really well. But in the end, I mean, it doesn't matter. The patients were actually doing worse. They were actually harmed. And unfortunately, this happened a lot and it continues to happen in oncology. And I think it has something to do with our internal, eternal optimism when it comes to, to these things. Are you sure? You mean optimism? <laughs> I would call it the optimism bias, but yeah. Yeah, there, there could be some influenced optimism, I guess. But yeah, the entire oncology community is really susceptible to this excitement surrounding breakthroughs. I remember one of the first meetings I went to as a fellow, it was a plenary session and the presenter had just presented some exciting news that I honestly can't even remember what it was anymore. But the crowd stood and gave her a standing ovation, almost like, a, like at a concert or something. Hmm. Cancer can be really frustrating. It's it, The day in and day out of it is hard, honestly. We love to celebrate our wins. And sometimes the celebration, though, can be a little bit premature. So there's a doc I like to read a lot named Vinny Prasad. And he's an oncologist who has this series of fascinating papers on the spin and the hype that we see in the oncology literature. He's really prolific and brilliant, and he's arrogant. He really loves to poke the establishment. You should definitely read his stuff. He's like the Howard Harrell of oncology, except in his case, his most recent book actually comes in a hardback, which, you know, is pretty nice. Oh, wow. I'm going to send you a hardback. I guess (laughs) I'm a failure. Okay, that's fine. Hardback's on the way. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. So anyway, one of these papers looked at the word cure in the oncology literature. So he found like 29 different papers in the literature that use the word cure just in the title. And these are journal journal articles. These aren't the Ladies' Home Journal. This is published work that you can find on PubMed. So he determined that only about a third of these were actually describing a cure. And about half used the word cure, even though the disease described was incurable. 
So he and his team have published on other words and phrases, such as breakthrough and game changer, with similar underwhelming results. So hope always springs eternal with us oncologists, but it can misdirect us sometimes. And today I wanted to talk about some lessons that we can learn by not changing our practice based on the hype that we can see from literature that just isn't mature yet. So specifically, phase two trials, as opposed to phase three trials, really have their own kind of group of difficulties with immature data. And it's important that we know the difference between phase two and phase three trials. Yeah, right. So just to oversimplify, the phase two trials are interesting and they can generate a hypothesis, but they don't have power to demonstrate the associations and outcomes that we could see with a phase three trial. Yeah, and I think all this gets into what we talk about a lot, that we just want something to work. We want hope. We sometimes overlook preliminary evidence. And one of the things I always remind, and I say in the book, of course, is that novel findings are novel. Be leery. There's a reason why they're novel. They haven't been replicated. They maybe have not gone through final validating studies and things like that. But especially I know when someone's dying or a baby's going to be born premature or whatever it is, we're really quick to latch on to preliminary evidence and almost institutionalize it as standard of care. And then the final study comes out, think McKenna, and it says it doesn't work. And then it's really hard to get it out of our culture. Yeah, this is really an urge. I think we really want to follow the that promising data, but we really have to avoid latching on to unproven treatments. So I assume you have some examples from the world of gyne oncology about this? I do. I do. Yeah. So one I'll talk about is a well-publicized one. And this is a far-reaching example because it actually involved a general oncology community because it was in the realm of soft tissue sarcoma. And this has actually turned into a modern day parable about the warning against the misuse of phase two trials. So this was a new drug called oloratumab. It's kind of hard to say, but they showed promise in the treatment of the of soft tissue sarcoma. And this includes leiomyosarcoma, as I said, and about I think about half of the patients in the study were leiomyosarcoma. For women with this, it's really a devastating disease. You guys know patients only live a few months after the diagnosis. And there hadn't been any FDA-approved first-line treatment since doxorubicin was established back 40 years ago. So we really had been in in kind of a realm of lack of development, lack of new drugs in this space. But along comes a new fancy monoclonal antibody, and the details of the mechanism don't matter as much. But just suffice it to say that it was very biologically plausible, and it worked in animal models. Yeah, and you've got to watch out for the plausibility trap here. We are quick to, we want something to work. It's appealing to what we need. It's plausible, and so we substitute plausibility for evidence, and that's a sticky trap we land ourselves in sometimes where all of a sudden now we don't need the evidence. If there's a chance it might work, if it's plausible that it could work, we'll just accept it as working, and we don't have the evidence yet. Yeah, one of Prasad's famous favorite things to do is he'll respond to tweets from drug companies or something that talk about a promising new drug that they've developed in animal models that saying something works. And he'll just reply with a tweet that just says in rats, because a lot of you can find things that work in animals well, that maybe don't work in humans. <laughs> it's true that, yeah, it's true that 19 is a true number. 99% of things found to work in animal models do not work in humans. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a problem, and that's why we do trials. And this, the pharmaceutical company did do the right thing. They did a trial. They did a phase two, an open-label trial, which means it was unblinded. And they published these results in 2016. And really, these results shocked, in a good way, the oncology community. The patients who got the drug, plus doxorubicin, had a median overall survival of almost 27 months. And this was twice as long as those who got the standard treatment of doxorubicin alone. So the drug got accelerated approval in the U.S. and then 40 other countries, and everybody started using it. It really was the hot drug for the time. And this was during a time when the FDA was permitting early underpowered survival endpoints to support accelerated approval. There's always the challenge of trying to not discourage pharmaceutical companies from doing research, right? So you don't want to make it to where they can't make money, but also you need to do the right thing for the patient. And I think that sometimes the FDA tries to find that line. And like lines we discussed earlier in this podcast, sometimes lines can be difficult to decide which side you need to end up on. 
But olorazumab quickly became the standard of care for Lyme mycosarcoma treatment, and the researchers proceeded with the phase three trial because that's what you do, that's what you're supposed to do, and the accelerated approval was contingent on it. But with the huge overall survival improvement, even the caveats for phase two trials notwithstanding, many thought that was just a formality. So the researchers even came up with this great name. They called it the announced trial, and they... When they made the announcement during the plenary three years later, and almost half a billion dollars in worldwide sales later, the community was again shocked, but this time in a bad way. Phase three trial showed no benefit in overall survival. I don't think that was the announcement that they were going for when they designed the study. (laughs) But the lessons here are the same lessons over and over again. You have a willing and receptive audience of physicians who really want to do whatever they can for patients who are dying or near death and who are really trying to help them. And then you have great sales pitches from companies and drug reps who stand to make a half a billion dollars, even in a few years of use, even if it turns out not to work later on. And so all these things come together, and like you said, the or this uh, trap of plausibility, and you're telling me there's a chance. That's the best way to describe the plausibility trap from a motion picture. And then we go down a pathway we shouldn't have gone down, and we don't wait for the evidence. And we don't, and oftentimes, unfortunately, we don't change our behaviors when the evidence comes in. Yeah, so currently we're actually using a drug that was developed in a phase two, trastuzumab, at least for the GYN space. It was developed in a phase two trial for the treatment of HER2 positive uterine serous cancers. And it showed an improvement in progression-free survival. And this has actually ended up in the NCCN guidelines as a as a treatment for these patients with uterine serous carcinoma. So I know the three of us have high views of guidelines, but we realize that guidelines come from evidence, and sometimes we have to know where that evidence comes from. Now, they use the surrogate endpoint of progression-free survival, and in, at least the argument was that they used a more statistically sound measure to base the accelerated approval. But bottom line is it's still an unproven treatment but in common use. So we're hopeful that this benefit will hold in the phase three trial, but these take a lot of time to accrue and mature and you can't get the data right away. Yeah, we can all certainly hope that it pans out. Yeah. And to give another example, just in the past few weeks, we've learned some discouraging news about PARP inhibitors. This is for our ovarian cancer patients. So there are certain mutations where these little pills have had a really remarkable improvement in progression-free and even overall survival. So these mutations are primarily the BRCA family of mutations, and they're present in about 15% of ovarian cancer. So 85% of people don't really qualify for this. So one of the recent goals of research was to define who exactly might benefit. Might there be some other subset of people with kind of BRCA-like mutations that may benefit from these PARP inhibitors? And there's also been some fancy companion diagnostics that have been FDA approved to look at things like tumor mutational burden and loss of heterozygosity and all these other markers and things that might help us identify who might benefit. There was even a signal from the NOVA trial that PARP inhibitors, specifically niraparib, might actually be helpful as maintenance in recurrent platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer. So, They use the progression-free survival, which we mentioned before, as the primary outcome. Overall survival is the thing that we care about because that's really how long people live. But progression-free survival gives us what's called a surrogate endpoint, which is something that we can get to sooner with the hope that it would correlate with the endpoint that we care about, although that's not always the case. But overall survival takes at least five years to mature the data. And so in a disease like recurrent ovarian cancer, where patients typically have lots of lines of treatment and you can have crossover and lots of complicated pieces that go into overall survival, progression-free survival may be helpful and it's often used as a surrogate. Long story short, when the NOVA trial published its favorable PFS data for this PARP inhibitor for maintenance, regardless of BRCA status, many of us started using this as an option. On average, women recurred five months later with this drug based on this data, so it was good. there was a good signal there. But recently, this overall survival data has matured and it was presented. And on average, women lived 36 months in the niraparib group, but longer, they actually lived 41 months in the placebo group. So we saw this disconnect between the PFS and the OS. And ultimately, that led to the FDA withdrawing their approval for this indication. And this unfortunately happened with two other PARP inhibitors and other closely related clinical scenarios. Well, that really is disappointing. I definitely remember 
doesn't feel too long ago when I was rotating through like PARP inhibitors. We we were reading all the papers on them on our onc rotations and all the med students were doing their presentations on them. And it was just this nifty, nifty little genetic target. But yeah, I guess we, we do have to be careful because th- this is about the failure of the PARP inhibitors when we're expanding the indication beyond those BRCA positive patients who we do think that they work well for, but we so want them to work well for everyone else too. And yeah, like you said, sometimes we do have to think about the more time-effective or cost-effective endpoints, like the progression-free survival instead of waiting for years and years for the overall survival data. But when we do that, we risk this kind of thing happening and just being disappointed later. And they're good lessons and things we talk about a lot. Surrogate markers, surrogate markers have innate failings. They actually, maybe more often than not, do not tell us the story you want to know, but they're practical and pragmatic. And again, when people are dying, of course, that's the way you conduct the science. So it's not a criticism necessarily of the way it's being done. It's just a limitation of surrogate markers and what I call therapeutic drift. We see that something works really well for one type of population, say C-sections for cephal pelvic disproportion, and then we want to expand it to a population that it doesn't work well for that's kind of like that, and all of a sudden you see more morbidity and mortality than you do benefit. So mind the drift and be conscious of surrogate markers, I guess. Well, we covered a lot today, and I think a few things at least will stimulate some readers to send in a couple of emails. So Stuart, would you like to share your email address for those readers? Yeah. I actually do not. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> but thank you for the thanks for the invitation. Mike, can you guys screen it for me? If I get fan mail, I definitely want to see that. So yeah, if you can I'll send, send me the some. fan mail. Thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> but I am the negligent caretaker of Save the Eponyms on Twitter. So you can find me that way. I need to do a better job of tweeting. But now that I'm out of fellowship, maybe I can do take care of it a little bit more. There you go. Well, yeah, we should wrap up. This was very fun. So thank you, Stuart, for spend the evening with us. It's great to be here. And anytime you guys want to invite me back, I'm happy to talk about the things that we can, I feel like we can expand on everything that we talked about today. Yeah. We definitely have more to do. (laughs) Yeah. We've hesitated doing oncology related stuff because neither of us are experts. So we'll definitely have you back on. Yeah. I'm glad to be here. All right. Well, thinking about OBGYN websites going to have links to a lot of the stuff we brought up today. And then we'll be back in two weeks with something else. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks.